Welcome to the Daily Devotion. The Daily Devotion is a time where we can be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. In today's episode, we're picking up in the middle of a series on the parable of the sower that we've been going through on Sunday mornings at Christ Church Conway. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me now to Mark chapter 4. We're still working our way through this long section that goes from verse 1 all the way through verse 44 and is kind of uh, set off in brackets by this statement that Jesus was teaching in parables. For the last few weeks, we've been looking uh, specifically in some detail at the parable of the sower, and we're going to continue there this morning. So let's read God's word together. We'll read chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and set it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. Most gracious Father, as we take time now to reflect on your word. We ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit, that I may preach in the power of your spirit, that we may hear with his help. And so as we gaze on the glory of Christ our Savior, we all may be transformed from one glory to another. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, we've been working through this section of Mark chapter 4 that reminds us or teaches us that the kingdom of God comes in counterintuitive ways, that it just doesn't work the way we might think it would work. 
And we've been looking at this in this broader context of these kingdom parables that that all in this section have to do with different seeds and different metaphors of how seeds grow and all of this kind of thing. But, But specifically in the parable of the sower or the parable of the four soils, We've seen uh, first the soil that that Satan comes and snatches the seed away. And we saw kind of the the counterintuitivity of this is the fact that spiritual warfare is a real thing. It's so easy for us in our Western mindset just to forget that reality. to, To kind of think, no, if we can't see it, it's not something that we need to worry about. But Satan is real, and spiritual warfare is a real thing, and we need the Spirit's help. The second soil, that rocky soil, was was counterintuitive in that we saw that, that zeal at the beginning isn't necessarily an indicator of fruitfulness. We saw that oftentimes zeal dies out just as quickly as it grows up. And so when... We're faced with these trials and tribulations. Sometimes there are some that fall away. This week we're looking at this soil with all the thorns. And the counterintuitive point of this is that the kingdom of God does not prize what the world prizes and therefore does not work how the world works. When we look at the kingdom of God and and we think about growing the kingdom or, or, or building the kingdom or any of these phrases that we throw out, we have to understand right at the beginning that it simply doesn't work the way the world works. It's not concerned with the same things. And that's the issue that we have here. This third soil, Jesus explains it this way in verses 18 through 20. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As I've said all along, the the point of this section isn't to teach us how to go be good soil. We saw last week that it's the Spirit who is able to make bad soil good. The the same is true here. It's only the Spirit, it's only God at work in us that bad soil is is able to be made good. We can't do that to ourselves. But what we see in this type of soil in particular is that these things that choke out the Word of God... Throughout the New Testament, Christians are warned about these things, doing this very thing to the Word of God in us. And so while this isn't a call to go be good soil, there is for us a reminder and a warning that we must be on guard against these thorny things of life that have a tendency to choke the Word of God out in us us and make us unfruitful in our walks with Christ. And so I want to ask a series of questions to help us think through this. First, what are the thorns? They're they're defined here as the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things. I want us to dive into this a little bit and give a little bit more specificity to this. 
the cares of the world uh, could also be translated the anxieties of the age. It's the same word. It's not even the normal word for world, cosmos. It's the word for, for age, uh, aeonos, or, or eon is how it would be transliterated into, into English. And the word for cares here is the same word that is used all over. In fact, usually it's translated as anxieties. So, so what we're being warned about here in this part, it doesn't exclude like trying to get the goods of the world, but, but really I think what's being driven at here is all the stuff in the world that we get anxious about. Th- that can grow up and choke the word of God out in us. We see a similar teaching in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus reminds us using these same words, be anxious about nothing. He has to call us and remind us, this is not how you live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is not how you live with the security that you have in me. I've not called you into fear. I've not called you into anxiety. I've called you into trusting that I will provide this teaching about anxiety comes on the hills of his teaching about prayer that we just prayed, where we're taught, give us this day our daily bread. Then he comes to this teaching on anxiety and says, don't be anxious about what you will wear or what you will eat or what you will drink. Your father knows that you need these things. Likewise, in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 40, we have this well-known story of Mary and Martha where Jesus comes to their house and Martha is busy getting things ready and cleaning or whatever it was that she was doing. And Mary falls at Jesus' feet and, and, and is with Him, learning from Him, being with her Lord and Savior. And Martha gets salty about it and goes and complains to Jesus. And Jesus' response to her is, Martha... You're anxious about these things. You're anxious about this this life. Mary has chosen the better option. See, sometimes the the anxieties that, that, that drive us aren't bad things. Martha wanted stuff to be right for her Lord and Savior. She she wanted things to be well prepared and 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 this wasn't a bad thing. We see a similar idea in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul has this teaching on marriage and and divorce. And when he's talking about marriage, he says, it's better to be unmarried because then you're not anxious about this life. Because the married man and the married woman have to be anxious about the things of this world because they have to care for their spouse. See, sometimes the, the, the anxieties of the age, the cares of the world, aren't just these negative, horrible things. Sometimes they're misprioritized good things. It's good to care for your spouse. It's good to, to love them and, and, and be there for them and, 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 and submit mutually to one another and, and give each other the gospel and, and care for one another and forgive one another. But, and we see this in the church, 
We have a way of exalting the marriage relationship and pedestaling it as if it's some kind of idol to which we must bow. And it can draw us away from fruitfulness in the Word because all we get concerned about is the health of our marriage. It's not that we should neglect the health of our marriage. It's not what I'm saying. But we have a way to worship what is the outcome of the gospel rather than looking and resting in the gospel. And there's so many other things that make us anxious. I mean, right now we could spend the rest of the sermon making a list. There's the coronavirus and how people are going to respond to it. Even if the virus itself doesn't make you anxious, the the response to it probably does. There's politics and the recent election and how that's going to go and who's going to lead. And and, and there's all the the myriad social justice issues that are in the world. And there's all of these things that, that we have a tendency to let in and let us be anxious and just get wrapped up in ourselves and in the cares of this age. And those can choke out the word of God because we start attaching our hope and our security and our identity to all of those things rather than to Jesus. The next point he makes is about the deceitfulness of riches that it grows up in us or that the riches and all of this grows up in us and can choke out the Word of God. Paul makes a similar statement or similar point in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Likewise, James in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. It's not that having money is necessarily sinful. That's not the issue. Like these other things that we get anxious about, it's that we sometimes fail to recognize that having the riches of this world, having the money like our guy on the kid's sheet, it doesn't actually provide the security that we think it provides. And when we look to money, when we look to finances and and to stuff, when we look to material possessions for that security, what we find, as James tells us, is that it is corroded and it bears witness against us. But we see money 
and we see the nice houses and we see the nice cars that don't break down and, and, and we see the clothes that, that, that are made of, of fine materials and fit just right and, and we see all of these things and we say, you know what? Money might not be able to buy happiness, but it gets you really dang close. And so I'll take it. And we have a way that we begin to prioritize it and pursue it. And it chokes out the fruitfulness of the word because we're looking to the riches of this world for the hope and the security and the identity that we only find in Jesus Christ. That's why I love that Mark here as does Matthew, as does Luke, because it's how Jesus describes it, talks about it as the deceitfulness of riches. See, the riches of this world make all kinds of bold promises, but they can't deliver on them. I love watching, in kind of a sick and twisted way, I love watching the ads for new medicines that have come out. It'll cure this, it'll cure that, you'll, you'll be happy. And then there's this like, I don't know if you, people that are older remember the Micro Machines guy that talked really fast, you know? There, there's this Micro Machines voice at the end that's like, beware of your stomach exploding and your brain falling out and your legs falling off and all, you know, blood coming out of your eyes. And, and you're like, whoa, 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 what? Like, hold on. I just needed to not have headaches as often. <laughs> It's a good metaphor for the reality of riches. They make bold promises, but can't deliver on those promises. But we are so easily deceived. And we think, that's what I need. That will do it. That will solve the problem. The third category of things he talks about is, in some ways, a, a catch-all. Desires for other things. The word desires here, uh, to me, is the same word for lust. It's, it's not just like, oh, I want to have lunch. It's this misordered desire where, where you're attaching something to that desire that, that is ultimate. In Romans Chapter 1, verse 24, we're told that God gave us over in the lusts of our flesh. In 2 Timothy, chapter 4, Paul tells us that a time will come when people won't endure sound teaching, but will gather teachers around them that will teach to their own desires. When no longer what God's Word says satisfies us, and we say, you know what? I want someone who's going to tell me what I want to hear. And so we gather those people around us. 1 John, where so much of our liturgy came from this morning, says this in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
when we're loving and desiring these things of the world that are so attractive to us, we're necessarily, by definition, not loving and desiring and pursuing God. As Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. There are no divided loyalties in the kingdom of God. And when we try to live that way, those subpar loyalties, those subpar desires choke out what is better. So then there's this question. Why is it that we're so enticed by these things? We can answer this in three ways. First of all, there's the reality of the fall in Genesis 3, 6. We see that Eve, when she saw that the tree was good for food and, and, and beautiful and, and, and you know, desirable to make one why, when she saw what Jesus is here talking about in the fruit, she said, that's what I want. And Adam, who was with her, took it and he ate also. And we were plunged into sin. As Paul so painfully lays out in Romans 1 and in Romans 3, that we have been given over to depraved minds, that we don't seek God. James puts a little bit different point on it. In James In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, there's this temptation in all of us, as we talked about earlier, to see the problem as out there. Yes, the, 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 the world with its riches is deceitful. But the real problem isn't the deceitfulness of the world. The real problem with me being enticed, the, the real root of that is that I in here want that. That's why I'm so easily deceived. Because I want that stuff. I I want the world. I I want the riches. I want the the, the peace that apparently comes with it. I want the power. I want the reputation. It's not just that it's out there and it's deceitful. It's that in here I'm corrupt and want to justify myself. That's why we run after it. Another question we need to recognize, though, or that we need to ask is, who is it that is so enticed this way? It would be easy to think that it's just, oh, well, it's the pagans that that know nothing of God. But that's not how it's presented here. Here it's those who heard the word of God. Throughout, Throughout the Bible, Throughout the New Testament, we're warned about just what Jesus is talking about here. All of these letters written to the churches in Colossae and Philippi and and Peter's letters to the elect exiles and Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, they're, they're warning Christians of these. Sometimes we we have this tendency to think 
that we won't be tempted by the world. But that's not true, and that's a dangerous track to go down. It is those who hear the word of God. And and it even apparently started to grow and was choked out by the cares of the world. We need to hear this warning. And so this begs another question. How then do we combat the thorns? Well, we must understand that, yes, it is Christ. It is God. It is the Spirit alone who can make bad soil good. But as Christians, we have been strengthened with the Spirit to fight back, to pull the thorns, to kill them and pile them up and burn them. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we've got to be honest in two ways. We've got to first be honest about ourselves, about our desires and our attempts to find our hope and security and identity in the things of this world. We've got to admit that like Calvin said, our hearts are in fact idol-making factories. Perpetual idol-making factories that were constantly enticed by this stuff. See, if we don't admit that, if we don't admit that a thorn is a thorn, that a weed is a weed, then we won't pull it. It'll just grow. The second thing we have to be honest about is the letdown of the thorns. I have a love-hate relationship with roses. I love buying roses and giving them to my wife and to my daughters because it's the symbol of love and they feel loved by it. But inevitably, you have to put the stupid things in a vase and inevitably, because I buy the cheap roses, not the expensive ones that have the thorns cut off, you're going to get bitten by them. We have to admit We have to admit the letdown of what this world has to offer. That it hasn't made good on its promises. Because when we're honest about that, it's easier to turn from it. A couple of quotes from a guy named Kevin Van Hooser. He's an incredible Christian thinker, he says, we fail to recognize how culture forms us not only by making explicit claims or value judgments, but also subconsciously. For example, by creating pictures of the good life and conditioning us to think these pictures are normal. See, that's the problem is is we we look uncritically at what the world gives us and says, this is how life is supposed, this is what the good life looks like. He goes on in the same book called Hearers and Doers to say, the time, energy, and money we spend during our roughly four score years on the world stage is largely a function of the stories and images of human flourishing in which we believe and put our trust. See, we can look at our lives and see what it is that we believe in. We can look at our lives and see what it is that we trust. One way the cares of the world win 
is through our desire to be liked and therefore liked by and respected by others rather than being satisfied with the declaration that our God is satisfied with us. We want nothing more than the praise of man. And we're quick to turn a deaf ear to the declaration that God is satisfied with us if it means that someone standing in the flesh before me will be satisfied with me. We've got to recognize these stories that we buy into, that we accept, that are anti-gospel, that are anti-kingdom. The second thing, when we look specifically at the cares of the world, at the, the anxieties of this age, if we go back again to Matthew 6, we, we see that what he tells us, the reason he gives us for not being anxious, it says, is because your father knows what you need. He knows your situation, so seek first the kingdom. How do we put off the anxiety of this world? One way is to recognize that our Father knows what we need and therefore we can confidently seek His kingdom knowing, as it says, that all that we need when we seek His kingdom will be added to us. That's a promise from the lips of our Savior. One way we combat the anxieties of the age is we seek something else and we don't let this age consume us. But then in both Philippians 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 7, we're commanded, we're, we're taught to put our anxieties on Jesus, to, to pray. Think about what he's telling them. He's saying, come to me and give all that trash to me. I'll take it. I'll take your anxiety." Come to me in prayer. Come to me in supplication. Let me know what's on your heart. Let me know what's weighing you down. Unburden yourself from those anxieties. Let me carry them for you. I remember backpacking as a child. And inevitably, the pack would get heavy. And I would get tired. And I didn't feel like I could go any further. And, and somewhere along the way, my dad would see the problem and he would come and we would take a break and he would take my pack and he would take some of the things out of my pack and put them in his and he would carry them. And I would put my pack on sometimes nearly completely empty and I would finish the trail with all the strength thinking I've done something incredible. I carried my pack. But the reality was I had been unburdened from that which weighed me down. We need to see Jesus that way and give it all to him. Just say, here, here's everything that I need you to carry. And it's everything. When we look at the deceitfulness of riches, there's a fascinating word study. The word in Greek for riches is plutos. It's used 22 times in the New Testament. Only five times is it used negatively like it is here. Three of those are in the different gospel tellings of the parable of the sower in Matthew's version, in Luke's version, and in Mark's version. Two other times, it's a warning against riches. 
One time it's just kind of a standalone, not really positive or negative, but 16 times riches is used in relation to God. It talks about the riches of his kindness, the riches of his glory, the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God, the riches, the immeasurable riches, it says, of his grace the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the riches of Christ, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the riches of the full assurance of understanding, the riches of the reproach of Christ that are greater than the wealth of the treasures found in Egypt. See, the reason I love this word study is because it sets this beautiful contrast up for us. The deceitfulness of the riches of this world and all that they promise that they can't actually accomplish. But the majority of the time, it's talking about the riches of God, the riches of his glory, the riches that are ours in Jesus Christ. Riches that aren't deceitful, riches that don't mislead, but actually accomplish what they promise and provide what we need and are so grand. That, that even the reproach of Christ, even filling up his sufferings, the Bible says, is greater than the wealth in the treasures of Egypt, which, when this was all written, were extravagant. Even the suffering found in Christ is greater riches than the riches of this world when we talk about the desires for other things and how we combat those thorns in Romans 6, we're told to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus and let not, let not the desires of this world reign in our bodies. In Galatians 4, 5.16, we're told, walk in the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Same word. You won't gratify them if you walk in the Spirit. He will not lead you in that way. Ephesians 4.22, we're told to put off our old self and put on Christ. In 2 Timothy 2, we're told to flee from the desires of this world. See, in all of these things, as, as we've talked about combating them with honesty and, 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 and prayer and running to the riches of Christ and fleeing from the desires of this world and, and recognizing the identity that we have in Christ, there's this common thread of running to God for help and for forgiveness and for strength and for holiness and for identity and security and for hope. That's how we combat these storms. We run to God and we find our rest in Him. And we stop believing the lies of what this world says. And we stop, we stop accepting the deceitfulness of the riches, but, but get honest about what they do and don't provide. We run to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the problem is we live with this fear of missing out. And what we need to learn to do and what we do learn to do when we run to Christ, we learn to ditch this 
fear of missing out and take up and embrace the joy of opting out of all of that. That's how we need to live. Why is this so difficult? Karen Jobs, an incredible New Testament scholar, she writes in her commentary on 1 Peter, to be chosen by God and committed to Christ is by definition to become a visiting foreigner and resident alien in the world and thereby disenfranchised from its entitlements that are based on undivided allegiance to its gods. She goes on to write their abandonment of socially acceptable but morally bankrupt practices, talking about Christians, incarnates the Christian's new identity as God's chosen, providing the opportunity for society to view them with suspicion, mistrust, and disapproval. That's why it's hard. It's because it really is putting off the narratives that this world gives us about how life works and accepting the narrative that Jesus gives us about how his kingdom works. And that's hard to do because we're bombarded constantly. We're bombarded constantly with the message of this world and how life works. And it's all lies. And we find it difficult to continually avail ourselves of the message of the gospel and the proclamation of how the kingdom of God works. The message that says Jesus came in the flesh and died for us to give us forgiveness for our sins, to give us a hope and a security and identity, to make us a holy nation and a royal priesthood, to adopt us as the children of God, to establish his kingdom forever and make us faithful citizens of that kingdom, to to provide for us all that we could ask or imagine, to fulfill all the promises that God has made to his people. We need to be reminded of that over and over And over again, we need to sing this song. Give me Christ or else I die. This is difficult. This is why we need the Spirit's help. This is why we must remember that it is only the Spirit who can make bad soil good, but that that Spirit who makes bad soil good indwells every believer, and we, by His work in us, are enabled to put to death the deeds of the body. We have been strengthened to rip the thorns out of the ground that we may grow and bear fruit only Because the Spirit is at work in us. So we run to Christ. We fall at the feet of our God, begging for his mercy. And we get it. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that the Spirit indwells us and that by Him working in us, we can rip the thorns out by the roots. We thank you for Christ and that your word teaches us to run to Him. We pray that you would teach us to do that. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.